Romans chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect, first of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously being reported and some claim that we say, let us do evil, that good may come. Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that you would guide us, help us, Lord, that we would correctly understand and apply this, this word to our lives. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. Well, I want to back up a little bit. So if you'd you'd flip back to the beginning of Romans, so often in Romans, we have to keep the bigger picture in mind so that when we zoom in, we know what we're dealing with. And so in Romans chapter one, verse verses one and seven, we we sort of get uh, the introduction part of the letter, who it's from, who it's to. Uh, We could summarize those uh, or reduce those seven verses to simply uh, Paul to all who are um, to all who are beloved in Rome, it, it says that Paul's the author. Uh, we see that it's to the church in Rome. Uh, within that, Paul sort of identifies himself in three ways. He he says that he's a bond servant of Christ Jesus. He was called as an apostle, one who was sent out, um, and that he was set apart for the gospel of God. And when he uses this term, the gospel of God, his mind—I don't want to say it wanders—but when he uses the term the gospel he can't stop himself from sharing about it verses two through six are uh, a parenthetical statement that that he goes on this discourse talking about the gospel he explains it in those verses once we get to verse eight uh, verses eight through 17 
Paul introduces himself to the church. This group of people, the uh, believers in Rome, Paul never knew these people. He, he never met them. He'd only heard about them. It was believed that uh, during Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, as people were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the feasts, there were a number of people from uh, Rome there. As Pentecost happened, a number of people converted. Those people went back to their home in Rome. Paul had heard great things about them. He shares with them. He said that he's, he's encouraged about the reports that he's hearing from them. He longs to see them. He wants to be mutually encouraged by them, that they would get to know one another. He goes on in verse 13. He, he begins to give a subtle hint, which he's going to address later. Um, at the very end of it, he says that he desires to obtain some fruit among them. What that's saying is he's hoping to get some money from them. He wants to to establish a partnership with them because Rome was so strategic. It was the capital of the world. Uh, They said that all roads led to Rome. And Paul viewed it, well, if all roads lead to Rome, that means that Rome leads to the whole world. And if I can get there and to get the gospel established, we can get the gospel to the world. He wanted to go there uh, to encourage them so that they would be effective in sharing the gospel. But he also wanted to get to the very outermost part of the world, which was Spain. The gospel hadn't gotten there yet. And later in Romans, we'll see that what he, what he ultimately wanted to do was to have them take a love offering and, and for them to finance his way uh, to Spain. Nobody knows. Some believe he made it. Some don't believe he ever made it. But we know that he desired to get there. And then in verses 14 through 17, we we see Paul's passion, his driving force in life, that he's under obligation both to Greeks, to barbarians, both to the wise and foolish in verse 14, because he's eager to preach the gospel to them in Rome. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And this gospel, as I think about this, Paul could have great shame over it. He was a Pharisee. He was a persecutor of the church. He was amongst the, the, the Jews that, that were leading the case against Christianity. When the first Christian was killed, Paul was there. They set their coats at his feet, symbolizing, I believe, that he was the one that was in, in authority, the one that was authorizing the execution to happen. But then he met Jesus and his whole world changed. And he wasn't ashamed of the gospel with his old friends, his old cronies, the Pharisees. He was, he was not ashamed. And the reason he wasn't ashamed is he lists two things. In verse 16, he says, number one, it's the power or, or dynamic of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He understood that the gospel was life transforming. And because of the work that it did in the human life, the one that was separated from God, he was not ashamed of it because of that. And then in verse 17, he says that through the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And he goes on, he quotes from that's Habakkuk. Uh, This verse has transformed men from Martin Luther to so many others. This idea that the righteousness of God is imputed or accredited to one's account through faith, not works. And that radically transformed Paul's understanding. And then in verses eight, chapter 1, verse 18, through today's text, uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Maybe I've been saying Romans 3, 23, but I'm making a mid-course correction. I, I 
think it's this section is where he's beginning to lay out the bad news. The bad news before he shares the good news. He talks about uh, what Charles Swindoll refers to this section as cinerama and panorama. That it's, it's humanity's sin before God. Nobody walks away unscathed. In the first, uh, the last half of chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, 32, he goes after the one without God, the humanist, or, or the, not the, the humanist, or the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Hedonist, that's the word. I'm, thank you, Larry. <laughs> I'll go easy on you next time I want to make fun of you. I'll, I'll give you one. <laughs> Larry's my lead banter. <laughs> but the hedonist, the one who says, that lives by the saying, he who dies with the most toys wins. It's about this life. Enjoy it. Uh, just go crazy. There's no reason to, to restrain yourself. You only love once, so you might as well just have a really good time. By the end of that, he concluded that although they knew the ordinance of God, those who practice such things are worthy of death. That this, this sin and the stench of their uh, attitude before God was vile and it was worthy of death. As we go into chapter 2, verse 1, he's going to address the moralist. Not necessarily the person who believes in God, but they believe absolutely that there is a right and wrong. The, yeah, those things are worthy of death, but I'm a good person. I'm okay. I, I don't do those things. And he's going to address the moralist in the first 16 verses of chapter 2, where he says he ends there with, on that day, with according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. And he essentially says, listen, you call yourself a good person. You think you're morally upstanding, but your measurement is other people. And you need a measure against God. And on that day when you stand, he's going to judge the secrets and the innermost part of your heart that you think you're hiding from everybody else. God knows and you'll stand account for that. It's like, oh, I don't really like this part. And then from there, verses 17 through 29 of chapter 2, Paul then goes after the Jews or the, the religionist isn't a word, but but it's a word I used, the one that stood firm on their religion. And the Jew was distinct. They were proud. Jew was not a derogatory statement. This was something they were proud of. They were God's special chosen people called out amongst all of the nations and trusted with great things. And Paul goes after them to show them that their religion won't save them. As we enter today's text, Paul presents four or five questions. There's five questions. I don't know that the fifth question uh, uh, kind of fits into the grouping of the other four. We know that Paul from Romans chapter 16, I always, I think his name's Tertius, but it, Tertius. Yeah. So, so if you go back to Romans, you don't have to go there, but in Romans chapter 16, verse 22, as there's this greeting of relationships, we see that it says, I, Tertius, write this letter, greet you. We know that it's thought that Paul's eyes had faded. Maybe his hands couldn't write. Uh, Galatians, he signs a letter saying, see with what large letters that I write to you, which was distinct from the other letters saying that he had a hard time writing. So his letters weren't that neat, but that he made the great pain to write Galatians. 
Well, Paul wrote this letter, but he had a scribe, this guy Tertius. It's believed that Tertius, Paul, and a guy named Gaius were in Gaius's home in Corinth, which is modern day Greece. And it's sort of the what, what I imagine is you have Tertius at the table writing for Paul. Paul's speaking to him. He's saying, okay, is this what you're trying to say? Okay, I'll write this down for you. And so Paul's kind of pacing back and forth. I want to introduce myself. What, what are the, the key doctrines? We need to start with the bad news. And as he wraps up chapter 2 in verse 28, Paul says this. He says, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward to the flesh. So the Jewish person who is very proud of their, their, their uh, racial background, their, the traditions held within their faith, and Paul had just sort of dismantled them to where he says, well, if a Jew's not a Jew outwardly, and circumcision's of no value, he, he goes on to say, if it, uh, uh, this is a Jew, verse 29, but he is a Jew who is inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not of the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. So as Paul tells Tertius to write this, I can hear Paul think of his old self before Christ. Not only was he a Jew that was a persecutor of the church, he's gone all over the country, all over the area, reaching Jews for Christ. He's heard every single argument. And he knows that when he says this, he can hear all of the questions that are going to start surfacing from the Jewish people or the Jewish readers. And so in verses 1 through 8, we almost, these questions, we have to almost picture two people there. Some have suggested that when the question's asked, it's old Pharisee Paul asking converted Paul and then converted Paul responds to the question. Does that make sense? Hopefully clear as mud. So the first question he knew would that would surface when he tells them at the very end of chapter two, which the chapters weren't there when he wrote the chapters and verses came by a great French guy that that helped break up the Bible so that we could navigate it clearly. This was just one letter. And he knew that when he said, well, a Jew is one whose heart is right with God. It doesn't matter if he's circumcised or not circumcised, whether he has the law or doesn't have the law. Then the Jewish person would be asking this question. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what's the benefit of circumcision? Why are we doing all this stuff if it doesn't mean anything to God? Is there any benefit? Is this just a game we're playing? Certainly not, Paul. We're God's chosen people. And so Paul responds to this question that he heard them asking. He says, great in every respect. Is it good to be a Jew? Oh, absolutely. He says, first of all, and you get the idea that he's going to unpack a bunch of different reasons on why it's good to be a Jew. But he only gives us one in this section. And his first response is, first of all, that they, the Jewish people, were entrusted with the oracles of God, literally the word of God. That, that the, the Bible that they had, that the word of God, and really the Bible that we have, came totally and completely through Jewish lines. There, there are, there's one, maybe two authors that were not Jewish that wrote, but I, I would submit to you that even the non-Jewish authors, they were just gentiles who were writing from a very jewish perspective and very jewish influence the more about uh 
Old Testament uh, Judaism, Judaism today doesn't necessarily reflect Old Testament Judaism, but the more we understand the Old Testament and the things that happened, the, the clearer the New Testament becomes. And Paul says, we were given the word of God, that God chose us and he used us to transmit the word of God to the world. If that's not a great reason to be Jewish, I don't know what is. If we were to turn, you don't have to go there. I believe that Paul's going to pick up this thought in Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, he deals with much of Israel during the present time. And in chapter 9, verse 1, I love the heart of Paul. He begins dealing with Israel's past. And he says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Let that settle in. Here's Paul, a Jewish man who's been saved through believing in Christ. He says, you know what? My heart is so broken over my people that if if I could say that if they would come to faith in Christ, I would be willing to go to hell if that was the difference. If If that's the commitment that had to happen, I would be willing to give up my salvation so that my brothers would live. That's power. I don't know how many of us, I don't know what background you're from, American, Mexico, tribal people. Like, do, do you have this passion for your people? I don't know very many people who say, oh, I, take, I would go to hell if my fellow Americans would all repent and come to Christ. Oh, this is deep love. This is Christ-like love. But then in verse 4, the part I'm getting to, and that's a total just detour. Verse 4, when he says, who are Israelites? To whom belongs the adoption as sons? That Israel is distinct from all other nations. Last week I mentioned the United States wasn't mentioned in anywhere in the Bible. And that may come to a huge shock to us. All I see is all other nations in the Bible are measured by how they treat Israel and how they view Israel. Their adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple services and the promises who are from the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. Going back to Romans chapter three, the reason I bring this up there, there's all sorts of reasons that Paul gives when asked what. What, then what's the advantage the Jew has? He has all sorts. The Messiah came through our family lineage. The Messiah, the savior of the whole world. That through Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant says that through Abraham, all nations, all peoples will be blessed. But here in Romans chapter three, what he says is, first of all, they were entrusted with the oracles or the word of God. This is a great responsibility to think that God chose Israel to trust them with the word, that the word of God would be transmitted. Now, he's certainly not talking about us, but as Americans, where we live, we are, 
I don't have any formal research on it, but I feel pretty confident that we as Americans, we here in Valley Center in this area, that even the very poorest amongst us are in the wealthiest 1% of all people and all humanity. We have the word of God. I'm pretty sure that all of us have a Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd give you like 10 of them. Most of us don't just have one, one translation of the Bible. We have multiple translations of the Bible. If you have internet access, you have pretty much accessibility to every single translation and every single language that's known to man. There's great responsibility in this. And so from this, Paul hears the second question. So here we are, we're Jews. We've been entrusted with the word of God. Did we fail? What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? And so here we get this, this idea, well, if God's trusted us, certainly not all the Jews have, have come to faith and, and not all Jews are walking faithfully with God. Certainly God will withdraw his promise. That God's faithfulness is contingent on man's ability to like maintain what he's placed upon us. Last week, I talked about the Abrahamic covenant, which I'll be speaking more of as we get closer to Romans chapter four, where Abraham becomes such a prominent uh, player in Romans. The Abrahamic covenant, when in Genesis chapter 12, God tells Uh, Abraham to leave his land and that he's going to go to this place and that through Abraham, he's going to give him a son. And through the son that all nations are going to be blessed. Abraham, I think, was a hundred year old man kind of going, you're crazy. Hundred year old men don't 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 have children. And oh, yeah. And my wife is unable to have children. But by faith, Abraham obeyed. And then the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 15 is basically the the document is sort of signed. And there in Genesis chapter 15, when God tells Abraham to get these animals to bring them up, Abraham realizes what's going on, that that God's going to expect him to make a covenant with him. And, and, And for those of you that were here, if you weren't here, I had Larry come up. And the idea in this picture is that the animals, they would place them at where two mountains came together and formed a valley. They would split them in half. They would put one half of the animal on one side, the other half of the animal on the other side. And the blood would drain into the goalie between the two. And any human that made a covenant, they would walk back and forth between this blood, basically saying, if I break my side of the covenant, may, may, as these animals are, may I be. And if you don't fulfill your side, may the same thing happen to you. And Abraham, his knees start shaking. I can't make this covenant with God because this is going to happen to me. When God says, don't worry, go to sleep, Abraham. And God walks through that little area back and forth. And it's significant because God's saying this this covenant that I'm making with you is not contingent on your faithfulness. It's totally and completely contingent on my faithfulness. I'm going to uphold both sides of the covenant. And Paul, knowing this, which he's going to expand upon later, he responds to himself who asks the question. You know, always say, you're talking to yourself. It's like, well, are you answering yourself? And that's when you start to worry. And Paul's doing it here. So he asks this question. In verse 4, he says, may it never be. 
Literally, the, the, the English doesn't translate or communicate the, the force behind this. Some have suggested that maybe like, like over my dead body. Never may it never be. It could never happen that way. Rather, let God be found true. Though every man be found a liar, if everybody lies, if everybody that God trusted the word of God to failed and didn't follow the things of God and they basically dropped the ball completely, God would still be faithful. God would still be righteous because his character is not contingent on us. God is separate from his creation. He is independent. He is holy. He is completely righteous. And then David says this. May every man be found a liar. But he pulls an example from an interesting person. He says, as it is written, we'll see this phrase twice. Uh, Most of us, I'd venture to say all of us, at this point in your translation of your Bible, that the font of the text should change. It should go from being regular, like lowercase letters that are only capitalized um, at the beginning of the sentence to all capital letters. There should be a shift. Everybody's Bible is that way. What that's doing is it it's notifying you that what is about to be written is actually a quotation, uh, an allusion to or a reference from the Old Testament. So that's why it's in bold. When you're in the New Testament and you see bold letters, that's what the bold letters mean. If you're in the Old Testament and you see old bold, all bold letters, you'll only see it in one case with Lord, L-O-R-D. If you see that, it means the word is Yahweh. But that's a diff that Will won't get. I shouldn't have even said that. I got too many files open. I let too much out. But so he says, as it is written. Now he's going to quote from Psalm 51. And I'd ask us to turn over to Psalm 51. So what he quotes is that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. What's Paul talking about? Why is he quoting this verse? And so as we come to Psalm 51, before it begins, there's a sort of a subscription, an explanation of the psalm. And from there we read about this psalm. It says, for the choir director, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Okay, so this is sort of a mile marker in the psalms to let us know the background. If you were or you want to on your own study, you would end up, I think it's in 1 Samuel chapter 23 or 13. I always I kind of know 23 is my other one. It's 13, I believe, or 11 even somewhere in there. You'd see the story where David is, is, is king of Israel. The nation was at war, and yet he stayed back in Jerusalem while his men were fighting. He sees one of his soldiers' wives. He has relations with her. She gets pregnant. David concocts a plan to bring the soldier back to try to get him to sleep with his wife so that she would be perceived to be pregnant by him. The man was honorable and he wouldn't fall for it. Three times David tries. Then David writes him a letter and says, give this letter to, I think it was Joab, if my memory serves right, or one of the commanders. 
Joab, my wife gave me the nod. Joab. I barely know your guys' names. When it comes to Old Testament people, it gets really hard. He gives the letter to Joab. Joab gets the letter. He says, hey, I want you to go advance into very treacherous sort of combat. As the troops go into combat, what I want you to do is I want you to pull everybody back except for Bathsheba's husband so that he'll be killed. Bathsheba's husband takes this order to him. It does it faithfully. He's killed. A year goes by. Then finally, Nathan in chapter 14, I believe, confronts David. Who's David? David's the king of Israel. Was there an election? No. How did David get there? God said, this is the king of Israel. This is the man I've hand-selected that I've chosen to lead my nation. Under David's rule, the nation would be unified. The north and south would come together. He would conquer the nations around. He would lay the foundation so that his son Solomon would ultimately be the wealthiest man in all human history. I still believe that holds true today. More than Bill Gates or you name it, Solomon was the wealthiest. If anybody had special position with God, it would be David. And, and this is where Paul decides to quote from to show that God is faithful, that his faithfulness isn't contingent on, on humanity's faithfulness or matching what he's providing. This is grace. And in this psalm, David begins with, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. And graciousness, grace, this is receiving something that you don't deserve. Mercy is having God withhold something that you do deserve. And here he asks, God, be gracious to me according to your loving kindness, according to your character, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgression. It's the picture of an of an ink tube exploding over your cloth. It's like sin in our life. And he's asking, Lord, would you blot it out? Would you remove the stain of my transgressions? Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. See, the Bible records that David was a man after God's own heart. Don't let that confuse you with thinking that God or David was perfect. David had all kinds of horrible, I mean, horrible sin. He should be in prison. But I believe that he gets this reputation of being a man's, a man after God's own heart because of how he dealt with his sin. He understands that his sin was horrible before God. That in God's righteousness, he, God had every right to basically hold David accountable. And the key, the part that, that Paul quotes from is the second half of verse 4 where he says, So that, so that you, that's God, are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. David is, has repented. He's placed himself on the floor before the Lord in total humility. And says, I'm not going to make any excuses. My sin is vile. And I'm wrong. 
And the only thing I have to cling to is your faithfulness and your loving kindness and your mercifulness. But if you respond without all of that stuff, you're justified. You're without fault. I deserve everything that's coming to me. And as we go back to Romans chapter 3, certainly the Jewish people would know what David was referring to and who he was quoting. When they say, well, if we fail, does that mean that God's not faithful? And David says, absolutely not. God's faithful because that's who God is. Look at our great King David, who we all honor and point to. Look at his great failing. Listen to his words. He says, You're justified in your words. You prevail when you are judged. Man, God is good. God is so good, so kind, so patient with us. And as he goes down this track, another question pops into his mind in verse 5. So Paul, the Pharisee, asked this question on their behalf. He says, well, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God... What shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? And then we get this this parenthetical statement. You sense that when Paul asks this question, that he's just so embarrassed. He can't even believe that he's writing out this question. He says, for I'm speaking in human terms. Like, I'm not really saying this. I'm taking a human argument, I'm presenting it, and I'm actually quite embarrassed that I'm even asking this silly question. Because they're essentially asking, i got to think through these ones, Romans makes you think. So, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? So what they're saying, and the best way that I could say is they're saying, this isn't fair. I was born this way. I fill in the blank. I have sin. That's how God created me. I am who I am because God made me this way. And then God goes and places these rules upon me. And then he tells me I'm condemned. It's not fair. So they're questioning the righteousness of God because it seems to be a false trap. Like if God created us and we're sinful, then he puts all these rules that we can't maintain. God's not really a righteous God if he would do that to us. He's just condemning us all to hell. Jesus, when he came, he speaks of being the light unto the world. Light exposes stuff. A few weeks ago, I often kind of tell the story, you guys, that spring is coming. We're all excited. I'm not excited because the weed whacker is coming out of the, you know, the spider webs are being shaken off. But on those spring days or the summertime when the light pierces through the window of your perfectly clean house, and then you suddenly see all of the dirt in the air. Like, I'm pretty sure that if we darkened out this room and then just let the spotlights go, you would see, like, dust particles floating. It's nasty. Then you start thinking, like, I'm inhaling that stuff. Like, does it inhale out or do I suck it in? Do I, like, does it just stay there? Now, the question is, did the light put the dirt in the air or did the light just show what was already there? The light simply shows what's already there. And so Paul's response here 
He says, may it never be, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? God is holy. Never lose track of who God is. When God gives the law, when we see the commands in the Bible, it simply illuminates what's already there. In us reading these first three chapters of Romans doesn't suddenly send us to hell. We need to view it like, man, I'm already in hell. I'm already separated from God. And when he talks about it, he's simply only saying the truth that already exists. He's not suddenly taking us from heaven and casting us into hell. Our sin has placed us separated from God. So verse 7. Moving on. Before I get lost in these questions, they get kind of confusing. But if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory. Why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil, that good may come. Their condemnation is just. So this one is sort of twisted logic. Okay, we're all sinners. A couple weeks ago, we went into Romans chapter 1. I asked you guys if you identified with any one sin in there, and everybody stood up. So we've all admitted that we're sinners here. Unless you're a visitor and you don't, you know, but just, you know, I'm not going to hold this over everybody's head. I stood too. But so then we start thinking, well, I've done this much sin that I identify with. And God's grace poured into my life and he saved me from that, out of that and uh, imputed his righteousness to me. God is a gracious God. Because of my sin, ultimately, God looked pretty good because he saved me from it. Well, I only had this much sin. But imagine how good God would look if I had this much sin. And then he saved me out of that. Wouldn't he actually look better? And Paul addresses something that that he was criticized of. Because as he was going around and sharing the good news that Jesus died for their sins, that he was buried, that he rose on the third day, and that believing upon him, you would receive salvation. You didn't have to become Jewish. You didn't have to be circumcised. You didn't have to maintain the Mosaic law. The Jews were criticizing him and saying, Paul is basically proclaiming this cheap grace. Just believe and you're saved and go crazy. Don't worry about the law. Don't don't worry about following the instructions. And he said, "This this is not true. Their condemnation is just. In Romans chapter 6, he's going to address this even further where he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, may it never be. So he asks his questions. And I'm not sure what the Jewish, see, I'm not a Jewish man living during this era. And it's hard to to speculate what what they felt or what they were thinking after these eight verses. By the time Paul got to verse 29, I imagine that they were pretty upset, that they were pretty offended at the things that Paul had said. But by the time he gets to these eight verses and he explains that, no, the the Jewish people are still pretty special in God's eye. He's entrusted us with these great things that that, that almost their, their pride could begin to swell again. And then Paul asks this question, which I think is distinguished or different from the other four questions he says what then are we referring to the jewish people better than they 
since we are distinct, since the Messiah did come through us, since we have these covenants. So are you saying that we're better than everybody else, Paul? Are we going back? And then Paul says, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. He said, we're all condemned. Our sin is is vile in the sight of the Lord. And as I'm going over this, the one, the one thing that comes to mind when I was a when I was a young seal, I just made it into the teams, and one of the old guys had a talk with with a couple of the newer guys that had just checked into the seal team, and he said something that affected me and for my time in the seal teams. I know that it's a part of the culture of all seals. But he said something. He's like, listen, none of you guys are special. There's nothing wonderful about any one of you guys. You've been placed into this community that has a great heritage. And and our reputation is built upon like the forefathers that came before us in the SEAL teams. You did nothing. It's not about you. You're not special. You're a part of. Of something that is special. But you yourself are just a chump. And we're all just a bunch of chumps. And I'm like. That's really true. I'm just a normal guy. But I I identified with this group. That has a pretty good reputation. And Paul said. Like I think this is what Paul said to them. You as an individual. you're, You're just a sinner. Like the whole rest of the world. Sure you're Jewish. Sure, our Jewish roots that God has called us apart, but he didn't call us apart because we were special or powerful. His word in the Old Testament actually says that he selected us from amongst the nations because we were the weakest. We were the fewest of all. And then he says again, as it is written, and he's going to string together. Charles Swindoll on this one says like a fine jewelry person strings together stones on a beautiful strand. He's going to pick select a handful of references to the old testament there there's no way i'd have time to go through and sort of show how they each connect you can study this this week on your own but he's going to quote from psalms multiple times he's going to quote from ecclesiastes he's going to quote from i know i'm missing one isaiah is a big one yeah that was the one that just break so he's quoting from like all of these places and so he says both Jews and Greeks are under sin. This is sort of his, the crescendo of his, uh, of this section, which is often referred to as cinerama uh, and panorama, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he says there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. If it wasn't offensive at this point, it's going to get real bad. Like I look at verse 13, I think that's just wrong. Of course, he's not talking to me. Look at the language. I think this is Isaiah. Or maybe it's a psalm that I'm looking. That their throat is an open grave. That, That the words that come out of your mouth are just death. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. 
The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So he just strings together all of uh, the scripture, making his case that our sin is vile. I know that when I read through this stuff, I feel like I'm dodging bullets. I'm like, ooh, I got past that one. I got past that one. And then as soon as I jump over here, I take one between the eyes and I'm like, oh, that got me. But the only reason I think I can get through any of them is because I'm not comparing myself to God. I'm comparing myself to you guys. And not even you guys. You guys are all a bunch of pretty good people. I'm to them. To the people on the streets of Escondido. To the guys down in jail. Compared to them, I'm a pretty good guy. Certainly this is who it's aiming at. But in verse 18, there is no fear of God. We're told in Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That the fear of the Lord is the the starting point for us as humans. We need to recognize that God is distinct from us. The, The creator who speaks creation into existence. The one whose grace gives us every breath that we have. That you are here and you exist. Whether you acknowledge him or you don't. It doesn't change the truth that he is your creator and sustainer and that we should have a healthy fear of him. And this is depressing. I mean, we're pretty helpless. By the time Paul gets through Romans from Romans 1 verse 18 to Romans chapter 3 verse 20. If we're honest about us and we allow the word to say what it is and we trust God at his diagnosis of us. As people, it should be pretty discouraging. I know I keep cheating ahead every week and kind of tell me where the good news comes in. But when we look at our condition before God, it, it's hopeless on our own. This, this is, if the, if the gospel is referred to the good news, this is the gospel of the bad news or the bad news. Most evangelists who have made a true lasting impact in the lives of like people and cultures, most of them would say, well, I'll spend 75% of my time on the bad news so that when I present the gospel, they understand. When I was leaving the SEAL teams, when I left the Navy and I was so involved in doing this ministry with one of the chaplains where I could tell my testimony and share the gospel and share the good news, I got out of the Navy, a new chaplain came in And I knew right away that it was not going to last because in our first conversation, he's like, what's all the talk about sin? God loves everybody. We're all good. He refused to deal with the truth of our situation before God apart from Christ. And ultimately, what that results in, there's no need for a savior because God is so loving that none of us are condemned. We need to take sin seriously. And this picture of where it goes, verse 19, he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that the purpose is that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes knowledge of sin. 
And so you get this picture of, I don't want to hear a word out of your mouth. Have you guys ever had somebody come to apologize to you? And they say, oh, I'm really sorry for doing whatever this was. They wronged you in some way. And they say, well, I'm really sorry for this. But then they start making all of the excuses for like justifying how they acted the way it was. And, and I've never had the like courage to say, just say you're sorry. Just own up for it. When you say the but and you give all of these reasons, you like totally undo all of your what you're saying sorry for. I read this verse and it reminds me of New Year's Eve. I know I just told the story, but it's fresh in my brain. Driving to Grandpa Hilton's house, the 400-mile road trip to San Luis Obispo, the last 100 miles through the 58 two-lane Whitey Road. I have to go to the bathroom. I've got four miles to go. I'm in the minivan, pedal to the metal. We're almost there. As soon as I came over that one curve and I saw the CHP facing the other way, I knew right away I'm in so much trouble. I'm getting a ticket. And I start pulling over and I tell Anna, I'm getting a ticket. His lights aren't on yet, but I'm going to just pull over because I know he's coming. Sure enough, he flipped around. I've done enough ride-alongs. I've seen enough people get arrested. I know the best thing that you can do is just not to make, just don't start making a bunch of excuses. Just own up to it. Take your medicine. So I tried to do that and it totally backfired on me. I say, sir, I understand I'm a chaplain. And I was going to say, just write me the ticket. I was wrong. I was speeding. And at that, he was like, oh, you're just trying to make a bunch of excuses. I'm like, no, 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 no. I do enough ride-alongs. I know. I know that CHPs, they give tickets to their moms. Like, and I'm like, just shut up, Gunner. Don't, don't, no, no. And then he's getting more riled up. And he's like, you're just trying to get out of it. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm not. I, I know I'm going to get the ticket. I know who you are. I know what you do. I, I was trying to say, and I'm just thinking to myself, Gunner, just shut your mouth. This is going to end with you being handcuffed. And I know that as he's talking to me, I just need to shut my mouth. But it's been said that we as humans, like we're good at making excuses and justifying our actions than repenting. And I get the picture when we read Habakkuk, when we read all of these Old Testaments, you get you get this picture that God's wrath is just slowly building and building and it comes to the point at that day when he's going to judge the world that he just wants silence not a peep and paul is building not to discourage us but to let us know where we stand for if we continue see i don't get to touch this for two weeks but look at this but this is one of the best buts in the Bible. Like I, when you see the word but in the Bible, it's often when it's in the beginning of this, this means that there's like a contrasting thing, something, something different coming. In this case, it's really good. Paul's just silenced us. As James says in, in uh, James 5, 6, he says, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The law is going to silence you. But if we respond like David, where we're on our faces before God, acknowledging our sin and how bad it is, then we get this but. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, 
even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ or in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. You could spend years studying that truth. Those three verses or four verses, that's Christianity. You're not saved by your works. You don't stand before God because you're a good person. You bring nothing to the table. Absolutely nothing to the table. But the gospel of God, that God so loved the world. That he loves us. He created us. He knows you by name. He knows every single hair that's on your head. Jesus on the Sermon of the Mount looking over the field and says, look at the, the, the lily, not the lilies, the daisies or whatever flowers. I don't know my flowers, but the beautiful flowers. Look how they're clothed to their majesties better than Solomon. How much more will he take care of you? And so when we look at this section, for those of you who have come to saving grace in Christ, that you've acknowledged what you understand what the gospel is, that Jesus died for you according to the scriptures for your sins, that he was buried, that he rose again, and that you've placed your faith in him. You're sealed in the spirit. You have new life in Christ. It's a humbling thing. It, it, it shouldn't lead to arrogance and to boasting us up. And so often people get saved. And then we get saved by grace. And then we begin to, to live under the law. Which Paul's going to address in Romans 5. Where it says stand in grace. Continue walking in grace. Next week I... You guys are going to be blessed with Roger. But as a little like experiment of your heart. I assure you. Unless it's just me. I'm a really bad person. When Roger's speaking and he starts telling about what God is doing at Donovan State Prison. You will likely hear stories about people who have done vile things. Donovan State Prison is not juvenile hall. It's not for like mild offenders. Many of these Men that are there are guys who the crimes that they committed were all on the newspaper were all over heinous things. And yet he goes in there and he shares the gospel of Christ with them. He loves on them. The guys begin changing their hearts and their minds. It's beautiful. But as he talks, keep a close eye on your heart. What are you thinking about them? For those of us who are Christians, or even I don't care if you're not a Christian. For me, the thing that God's convicted me, when I see those stories or meet those men, to recognize that the only reason that I'm not there is because the grace of God has put restraints into my life that the evil in my heart hasn't had the opportunity to fully manifest itself, that he has intervened. I have horrible, I mean, I'd say horrible nightmares. This is a little exaggeration for the seriousness. I really fear going to jail. Like I'm pretty much a law-abiding citizen. I, well, I am a law-abiding citizen, just for the record. <laughs> I don't want to get... But I have a fear of like going to prison. 
Like in the middle of the night, I was like, oh man, all of my cop buddies turned on me and they thought it was a joke and they hooked me up and then they sent me away to prison. It's horrible. And I think that I have these, I think I have these dreams because deep down I know, I know what a, what, what, what's truly inside of me. That it's only because Jesus has washed me white as snow that he's given me a new heart. But I remember who I was. And so we need to have the heart of humility. We're not better than they, as Paul asked that question. For we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But it's by his grace through faith that we've come to this position of having his righteousness imputed to us. And if you've never believed, if you haven't trusted upon Christ, if you're not sure of your salvation, it is not about doing good works. I, for, for my very early in my Christian life, I thought that I had to accept Christ every single week. I thought I could lose my salvation or I thought I pretty much lost my salvation between from Sunday to Sunday because of stuff or thoughts I'd had. It's not about works. Ephesians chapter one, verse 13 is critical in our understanding. It says that when you heard the gospel, that's it. Jesus died. He was buried. He rose again. When you heard the gospel, at some point you heard it and then you believed when you believe that Jesus dying on the cross was done for you, your lives are exchanged and suddenly we're credited with his righteousness. It's a beautiful thing. And so my prayer is that if you haven't come to trust Christ, that, that God would connect the dots in your mind so that you could, you could come to know him as savior, that God would change your life. And for those of us who have believed that we would continue walking in grace. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that as we uh, go through this week, Father, that your presence would be felt in our lives. Lord, we ask that the truth of your word would, would be planted deep into our hearts. Father, I pray that you would help us to rightly understand you. Father, I pray that you would give us a big picture of who you are. That we would see a glimpse of your power, your holiness, your mighty hand. That we would be silenced before you. Lord, it's humbling to think that you, the great, powerful, almighty God, knows us, loves us, desires a relationship with you. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us in our relationship with you. Father, we pray that you would continue doing the cleaning out of our hearts. Father, help us to see others through your eyes. Give us your heart. Lord, help us to love people like you loved us. We're thankful, Lord, for this day and for this life that we have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.